to be together on this Lord's Day, to be able to worship God, to commune with Christ, to express our praise and thanksgiving through song, to petition God together as a family in prayer. And I'm excited and appreciate always the privilege and responsibility and opportunity to be able to study God's Word with you for a little while. This morning, as we complete our series, I've been doing the last several months on the epistles of Peter, and we've been looking at and exploring this uh, overarching theme of living as an exile, and within that, we've explored three sub-themes, sanctification, separation from the world, living as exiles in the world, not of the world, holiness, be holy as I am holy, sanctification, the surprising theme, maybe living as an exile, a response, submission, and then we've talked throughout about the context of the letter is one of suffering. We've concluded this series, the little mini-series on suffering. And in the first part, we looked at why we suffer. And then last time we transitioned from asking why to how do I respond to suffering in a way that will bring glory to God and others to Christ. And we saw within First Peter there are three main responses to suffering under which all the specifics and nuances of how we respond to suffering fit, and that is respond in faith, hope, and love. And last time we talked about responding in faith, and then we began to talk about how we respond in hope, rejoice. And this morning, we want to pick back up and conclude our observations on how we can respond to suffering and hope, and we'll see how faith and hope come together to enable and inspire us to give the ultimate response of love. Already stuck, Brad. Here we go. So what we've been emphasizing throughout our discussion on how we respond to suffering is you can't control all of the suffering, but you can control your response the kind of person that we become as a result of suffering. What happens to us is less important than what's happening inside of us. And the same suffering that can make one person bitter and calloused can make another person better and compassionate. That depends upon the response. It's the result, not the cause, that makes it meaningful, that determines whether it's useful or destructive. And so if we're going to respond in a way that glorifies God and brings, other, brings others to Christ, our response, how we respond to events, circumstances, suffering is predicated upon our mentality. And that's why we see this emphasis throughout this letter. Chapter 1, therefore, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully. The first imperative in this letter, hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 4, 1 and 2, similarly. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. That's an interesting statement. I wonder, you know, how does that work? Uh, what does it mean that those who have suffered in the flesh have ceased from sin? I don't think that means that we're perfect, that we've completely ceased from sin. But I think it simply means that if I'm willing to suffer for doing what's right, uh, I've proven my bondage to sin has been broken. I'm thinking of uh, Romans 6. I'm dead to sin. I obeyed the God. I put off the old man. I've crucified the I'm, I'm resurrected to walk 
my general walk and direction is in newness of life. doesn't mean I'm perfect, but that's my, my lifestyle, my, my, my character. I've ceased from sin. I've proven the bondage to sin has been broken. I'm no longer under the dominion and the rule of sin. And that release from the bondage of sin is described in verse 2. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. And if I don't choose suffering for doing what's right, if I don't choose suffering that's the result of denying myself, I'll choose sin. That's the point. In responding right, suffering right, suffering well, like doing anything well, requires careful preparation. Many Christians experience devastating, disorienting, destructive grief because their expectations are false. And we've talked a lot about that. Don't be surprised. Being forewarned means being forearmed. They haven't prepared and given the, the, the subject of evil, pain, and suffering careful consideration until confronted with tragedy. They haven't been forearmed with a deep theology. And so if we're going to respond to our suffering with hope, I believe that requires that we look and we focus on unseen realities. That's the emphasis. First Peter 1, in this first chapter on hope, we were born again to a living hope uh, through the new birth, through the mercy of God. We have an incorruptible inheritance, uh, undefiled, reserved in heaven for you. We're kept by the guarding power of God through faith. And then he says in verse 8 and 9, Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Romans chapter 8, 16 through 18, Paul writes, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him. That, here's the result, here's the plan, here's the purpose. We may also be glorified together. For, the because, the why, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. It's all worth it if I can know I'm going to heaven. And that's the same concept Paul presents in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Wonderful verse, text, uh, book uh, on the theology of suffering. If I was going to go to a book in the New Testament, and certainly the theology of suffering is presented from the Old Testament to the New Testament. In every book, there are nuances and teachings on how to suffer and how to respond to suffering. But if we're thinking of a book that contains a lot of teaching on that subject, that that's the context, obviously First Peter living as an exile, a fiery trial coming upon them. But along with that book, the other book I think of is 2 Corinthians. He's written to the church at Corinth previously. They had a lot of problems. He has established this church, and he's addressing these problems, and now things are beginning to, to resolve themselves, show signs of improvement, and yet there's still an element within that car. There's people that are working to undermine his authority. And with this church that he has labored for, he has established, he has risked so much for, and so now he's being forced to do something that he doesn't want to do that's very awkward. He's having to defend his apostleship. And how does he do that? Humbly, brilliantly, by boasting in his weaknesses, by boasting in his thorn in the flesh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. That's how you do it. 
by saying that you can't explain all the things that are being accomplished through me, in me, through my ministry, in spite of my weaknesses, in spite of my thorn in the flesh, in spite of being a jar of clay in an earthen vessel, but by the power of God that is with me as an apostle of Jesus Christ. That's how he defends his apostleship. And so, so much of that book is how to respond to suffering, adversity, opposition, how to be resilient, even while being a minister of Christ, while serving Christ. And so Paul gives us here in this specific text in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 the secret of what we all want throughout the world. We all want this secret. We want to be able to respond to events and circumstances and adversity in life, hard-pressed on every side yet not crushed. We are perplexed but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. We are struck down, but not destroyed. We get knocked down, we get back up. That was Paul's life. That's the secret. We want to know the secret of spiritual resilience. And he goes on to say, we don't lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. We want daily renewal. We don't want to lose heart. We don't want to get discouraged and disheartened. We don't want to give up. We don't want to quit. And Paul here gives us the secret to that. How to be renewed daily and strengthened daily and not lose heart. You know, the key characteristic of leaders, of winners, you know what the theme is? You know what you see in them? Resilience. We all face adversity. We all fail. We all lose. The Bible says a righteous person falls seven times and gets back up. And many have a desire for such spiritual excellence and resilience, but they don't have the daily discipline necessary to produce it. It's a daily discipline that builds the strength and courage and depth required to perform in moments of crisis. And Paul has the secret to that resilience. And he's qualified to give us the secret. As an apostle of Christ, he's defending that authority. He has the, it's the words of God, ultimately, the secret of God. And he's also qualified by experience. The one who wrote this suffered tremendously. We have a catalog of what he had been through, what he was going through in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. This is not someone who can't relate, who's out of touch, who doesn't know what he's talking about. And he says in verse 17, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. That's the secret. You got to zoom out. You got to look at the big, you need a longer timeline. You got to have an eternal perspective. If you have an eternal perspective and if you have purpose to live for, you can handle enormous pain. We know that by experience. Research bears that out. Humans can do superhuman things, superhuman strength when they have perspective and purpose. They can endure tremendous pain if there's purpose and meaning behind it. We go through all kinds of things, put ourselves in situations, experience things that we know are going to hurt and are going to be very painful. But if there's purpose, if it's going to accomplish something, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Despite, if there's purpose behind it, we can handle enormous pain. It's whenever, when we, when we can see the light at the end of the tunnel. It's when we can't see that light, we quit. We lose heart, we aren't renewed, we give up. If you have a why to live for, you can endure almost any what. And almost anyhow, that's the secret. And there are two words here in this text that ought to get our attention. 
signal words, indicating words, therefore and for. He says we don't lose heart. We're renewed day by day. That's what we all want. That's what we're here for. That's what we want. We need renewal daily so that we don't lose heart daily, so that we don't quit daily. And this renewal implies something's running out. You you need to be renewed because something's emptying. We need to refuel. We need to take that dose of medicine daily. Jesus said in Matthew 6, sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Lamentations, the mercies of the Lord are new every morning. And I think that's by design. We talked about why we suffer. I think that's by design. We're designed to be wasting away, perishing in a sense, emptying so that we go back to the source daily. To be reminded daily, I am weak, but thou art strong. He's renewed how? He writes in Colossians 3, renewed in knowledge. So evidently this renewal is tied to what we know, and we've talked a lot about that, what we believe. The condition of our heart is contingent upon the contents in our head. Not losing heart is dependent upon not losing truth. Not losing touch with spiritual reality. That's what he's saying. Paul is renewed daily because he is filling his mind. He is choosing to focus on these truths. The therefore takes us back to these truths that he's just described. This is the foundation of not losing heart. These truths, these that's lead into this experience of not losing heart, of being renewed day by day. The four gives us the reason why these things are true. We just read this earlier. This is why this is true. We're renewed day by day. We don't lose heart day by day because verses 17 and 18 are true. That's the reality. And note verse 16 teaches that we cannot lose heart. We can be renewed day by day even though we're perishing. Even though we're presently experiencing, uh, the word means wasting away, adversity, opposition, tremendous affliction and suffering. Those things aren't mutually exclusive. So when we look at these truths that lead into this experience of not losing heart and being renewed day by day, we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We're always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Because God's power in the life of His Son is exalted in our weakness, our suffering, and our sacrifices. Therefore, we don't lose heart. Because my suffering and weakness is strengthening the church. Therefore, we don't lose heart. If our passion daily is to bring glory to God and grace to others day by day, we won't lose heart. We'll be renewed day by day. Because of God's sustaining presence, because God will not allow me to be crushed or destroyed, therefore we don't lose heart. Because of the Lord's resurrection, which gives me hope and promise of my resurrection from the dead, because there's a happy ending in spite of the fact that I'm presently wasting away, therefore we don't lose heart. God is inviting us to look to unseen, eternal glory to come. Look at all these reasons for not losing heart, and you'll be renewed day by day. And I believe verse 17 is the main argument. This is the main for, the main because. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Our light 
momentary affliction is doing something for us. Even if you can't see it. Even if you can't feel it. That's the point. You can't always see it. You can't always feel it. When you're suffering, whatever you're going through, whatever happens, don't look at what you can see. You'll lose heart. Don't look around you at what you can see. You look around, one day can seem as a thousand years. You look up, one thousand years can seem as one day. It's light and momentary by comparison, and it's doing something for you, even if you can't see it, even if you can't feel it. Hold on to that. Be renewed by that every day for the rest of your life, and you won't lose heart. It's doing something for us. And verse 18 says, look at it. See the power of God and the life of His Son glorified in your weakness. See His grace brought to other people in your weakness. See the presence of God never leaving or forsaking you. See the empty tomb and the promise that death was not the end of His story. Death is not the end of my story. See how momentary and light your afflictions are when compared to the eternal weight of glory that's coming to you that's beyond all comparison. See these things, believe these things, focus on these things, and you won't lose heart. You'll be renewed day by day. How do we do that? How do we see these things? How do you see something that can't be seen? That's what he's telling you to do. (laughs) How is that possible? That's the secret. Look at what can't be seen. How? He goes on to write in chapter 5 about, you know, he talks about wasting away in chapter 4, but we're looking to the eternal. We're not looking at what we can see happening all around us. It's transient. We're looking to the eternal. And he goes on to say, you know, we don't want to die. We don't want to be naked. We want to be disembodied in that sense. We want to be with the Lord, though. We'd like Him to come back before we're disembodied, if all possible. But what we really want is we want our mortality to be swallowed up in immortality. Now, He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. That's how you see it. Through the eyes of faith. Not a blind faith. Not the way the world and many Christians define faith as a blind leap. No, it's a, it's a walk in the divine light. It's based on witness. It's based on testimony. It's based on truth. We talk a lot about that in apologetics, defending the faith, reasons we have faith. It's supported with a foundation of truth and reason and logic and evidence that God has given us to cause us to believe. He's not talking about taking a blind leap, but we find and we renew strength and courage and faith and hope and love by looking to objective truth revealed in the eyewitness testimony of those who walked with Christ. Second Peter chapter 1. And so as we go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, two words that stand out to me, light and momentary. And when you're suffering, those words are almost an insult, right? You see those words and you're going, that's not what I see. That's not how I feel. But again, this is someone who is suffering tremendously, and he describes this suffering as light and momentary. 2 Corinthians 11, beatings, shipwrecks, sleep deprivation, the care of the whole church. That's his experience in the flesh that's perishing, that's wasting away for the rest of his life on earth. That's his experience, and yet he calls it light and momentary. That's not what I see. Is he crazy? Is he out of touch with reality? No, because there's two realities. What you can see and what you can't see. And he has chosen 
He is choosing to focus on what can't be seen. The contrast is between what's momentary and what's eternal, between what's light and what's weighty. He's looking, he's looking, he's looking, and he sees glory. The glory of God, the eternal weight of glory with God that's to come, and that glory allowed him to see his present circumstances and suffering as momentary and light, even if they lasted for the rest of his life on earth. There's not going to be any complaining or grumbling or lamenting in heaven. Who in heaven is going to be griping that the price they paid to get there was too high? And it's the faith and the hope that work together, that come together to inspire us and enable us to give the ultimate response of love. Love often wins its greatest victories in seasons of suffering. Self-sufficient people learn to cast their burden upon the Lord, we've talked about, and upon other people. Self-centered people have their hearts and their minds awakened to the interest of others. We talked about how one of the arguments against God's existence commonly given is the presence of evil, pain, and suffering. How could a loving, all-powerful God permit evil, pain, and suffering? Therefore, God does. And we talked about how actually it proves the opposite, the moral argument for God's existence. But they'll say pointless suffering proves God doesn't, you know, not just suffering, but if it's pointless, there's no purpose behind it. And we talked about who gets to decide what's pointless. Who knows who can see what suffering's permissible to bring glory to God and others to Christ and to strengthen and refine and prove our faith? Who, gets, who can see that? Who can see all the ways God's working behind the scenes in it, even though we can't see it or feel it? Who can see that? But God, that's very presumptuous, very arrogant. And they'll say, walk through a children's hospital and you'll know God doesn't exist. I would counter the opposite. You walk through a children's hospital and you see the care and concern and selfish devotion of parents and doctors and volunteers, and you know survival of the fittest, evolution is not true. All these resources being wasted according to evolution on the weak, theism can only account for that selfless devotion. And throughout this epistle, Peter is calling for a response, the response of Christ that can only be explained by faith, hope, and love. A joyful Humble, submissive service that's willing to suffer wrong, suffer for what's doing right, rather than return evil for evil. To endure and to do good and pay the price of love because our future is secure and glorious. And whenever I know and believe my future is secure and glorious, I don't have to be retaliatory and self-absorbed in the present. I'm free to submit and serve and love people because my future is secure and glorious. I don't have to have the best house, the best car, the best job, the best relationships because I have the hope and promise of eternal glory in heaven. I want to share a few quotes. The first few centuries after Christ, how Christians were responding to their suffering, to the fiery trial that Peter had prepared them for by doing good by responding with love, Tertullian writes to the emperor, basically begging him to quit killing them. We're the best citizens. We submit. We make your government better through our morality. We're the best. We're loyal. God's taught us to do that, taught us to submit, First Peter. Please quit killing us. But if you don't quit killing us, we Christians multiply whenever we are mown down by you. The blood of Christians is seed. 
Jerome writes a little later, the church of Christ has been founded by shedding its own blood, not that of others, by enduring outrage, not by inflicting it. Persecutions have made it grow. Martyrdoms have crowned it. Another description of Christians, they dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners, as citizens, they share in all things with others and yet endure all things as if foreigners. Every foreign land is to them as their native country and every land of their birth as a land of strangers. They marry as do all others. They beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They have a common table, but not a common bed. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws and at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. They love all men and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. They are poor, yet make many rich. They are in lack of all things, and yet abound in all. They are dishonored, and yet in their very dishonor are glorified. They are evil spoken of, and yet are justified. They are reviled and bless. They are insulted and repay the insult with honor. They do good, yet are punished as evildoers. When punished, they rejoice as if quickened into life. They are assailed by the Jews as foreigners and are persecuted by the Greeks, yet those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. Is that how we respond? People choose to hate us, they can assign no reason for their, for their hatred. Think about how we respond in love. Peter writes in 1 Peter 5, 9, Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing, we've talked a lot about that, that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Think about all those who have suffered. We just read some of those quotes. Hebrews 11, the heroes of faith, martyrs, Job. And find comfort and confidence that God has been with them all. That we're not just surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, but we're surrounded by God himself. Not just by countless sufferers, but by a sovereign God who suffered and died for you. Nails, thorns, blood, sweat, tears. To purchase your reward and bring you into a brotherhood you won't find anywhere else. And knowing what others have gone and continue to go through to get up and face the day with faith, hope, and love every day inspires me to do the same. So as we think about, don't think you're the only one. Christian fellowship, Peter gives us uh, this strategy for maintaining our exile status and orientation, and it's part of a community. 1 Peter 4, verse 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Suffering has a way of isolating us. That's my initial response. I want to withdraw. And that makes us weaker and more vulnerable. That's exactly what a predator wants to do. And instead of withdrawal and isolation, Peter prescribes the exact opposite response. Don't stiff arm God. Don't stiff arm the brotherhood. Because God comforts and strengthens and heals us, not in isolation, but as part of a community. Above all, that means this is really important. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Because the stress that comes upon us as exiles in a foreign land can make us say things and do things that damage the relationships we need so badly together to maintain this exile orientation and status. And so we need love to bear and and forgive. And because that same threat and pressure 
threatens apostasy. We need the love that's going to look out for one another and help us to stick together. And he's just written the previous verse about being sober-minded leading into this. The opposite of that would be drunk, inebriated. That could be on many things, alcohol, drugs, the world, emotionally drunk, mentally drunk. Various ways we can be incapacitated. You ever been around somebody who's drunk? You know, one of the things you notice about people when they're drunk, they're out of touch with reality. (laughs) They're out of touch with reality. And what do we do when someone we love and we care about is out of touch with reality? We have an intervention. Surround yourself with people who will help you see it and will get you through it. Because love covers a multitude of sins. And this is another challenging verse. When I looked at this, how? How does that work? Does my love cause God to cover my, I've earned that? No. Loving others, God's going to cover their sin. There's certain doctrines that you can pay for the sin. No. I think it just means simply that the nature of love, agape love, godly love, is to cover sin. That does not mean cover it up. Don't address it. Don't, that's not how God covered our sin. Agape, godly love, confronts, it addresses, it rebukes, and then it forgives, and it forgives, and it forgives. Present tense covers, continues to cover. That's what God's love does. And if we're going to thrive, survive, and thrive in a foreign land as elect exiles together, we need this love so badly. Because that's the key to relationships, bearing and forgiving. Love earnestly, love fervently, not just a love we have for enemies that we put up with them and we overcome evil with good and love is a choice, but I don't like them. It's an affinity, not just an agape love, a brotherly love that has an affection for those that we've come to depend upon and we cherish that relationship. The word mean is an anatomical word that means stretched, strained, maximum output. It's, it's like a runner or a horse and max, that's the kind of way we are to love one another. And I thought about this in admonitions we're told to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice and how sometimes I don't feel like I do that with everybody like I should. And I thought about that recently when, when Colton lost his brother and, and I was grieved by that. It, it bothered me. It affected me. Um, and I hurt for him. But then there's times I get news of somebody suffering or going through, and I feel for them. We should, even people we don't know, as Christians, we should have compassion towards any suffering. You know, the St. Jude's commercials, suffering should just, just destroy me. And we should feel something. But I'm talking about weeping for those who weep and that kind of brotherhood, that kind of many members, one body, where we feel it, we're affected by it. And there's been times I've received news, somebody's suffering, and I feel bad. I don't, I don't like that for them, but yet I'm eating and watching, and I feel insensitive. I just, you know. But then there's times, I mean, I'm, I'm a wreck. I'm destroyed. I'm, I'm weeping. And I hope that the majority of these people in this room, I would weep for you. If something happened in your life and you were suffering tremendous pain, I believe I would weep for you. But I'm not sure if it would be 100%. I hope you would weep for me. But I'm not sure it would be 100%. Why? What's the difference? Why do we weep for our family but not always for our spiritual family? And what I, my answer, what I think the explanation is, time. 
I, I worship with Colton. I work with Colton. We've studied together. We've been in each other's homes, around each other's tables. We're vested. Love does not become fervent through negligence and distance. Show hospitality, and here's the, here's the convicting part, the hard part, without grumbling. Because there's a temptation and a tendency to want to check the boxes and then grumble about it and not do it with heart. He's been emphasizing elders serve with the right heart. By example, willingly, not for dishonest gain. Serve, give, be hospitable with heart. Be known for good deeds with heart. And a, be grumble-free good deeds that's a light in a self-centered, angry, bitter, grumbling world. Do it with grumble-free joy because great is your reward in heaven. Use your gifts to serve others. That's the, your, the gifts and grace God has invested and entrusted to you are not meant just for you. They're meant for other people. Key word here is steward. You are a steward of God. Each one has received, not clergy or laity. Every one of us have, have been gifted and graced by God. And the purpose of that gift, those gifts and grace, is to serve others. The word there means a table waiter. That's literally what the word means, of God's varied grace. We talked about this word when we talked about various trials and how it means multicolored. Multicolored trials to make us well-rounded. Evidently, God wants all aspects of our character to be tested and refined and purified and strengthened. Various trials, various grace. Multicolored trials, multicolored grace. And God takes these multicolors, these many members, makes one body. Multicolors, and he makes it into one unique color, the body of Christ. God has gifted me. God has graced me. How can I gift and grace others? When that becomes our mindset, our mentality, we will discover our gifts. We will discover our ministry. Serving the strength by which God supplies to make God look strong, not me. Reminds me of when God led the children of Israel out of, between a rock and a hard place. And they griped about it. But you know what that's, you know, sometimes God leads us into these barren places, into the wilderness, where we're stuck, we're trapped. To make it abundantly clear, you didn't get yourself out of this. You didn't part the Red Sea. You didn't get yourself to the other side. I did. And what song did they sing on the other side? A song about God. When Samson had superhuman strength and he was tempted to think that it was because he was strong and not know where his strength came from, <laughs> what song did he sing? Samson song, sang a song about Samson. And so sometimes God will permit us, we'll lead it to this place of wilderness, of being entrapped, so that our song will be a song about God. And so the ultimate response Peter is calling for throughout, therefore let those who suffer according to God's will, we've talked about that, entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Notice there's not an ex exemption if you've had a bad day, if you're bitter, hurting, not a nice person, pessimistic. You know, suffering has a way of turning us inward to make us feel vulnerable, less capable. But what if this process was actually part of making us more capable? We talked about these verses. Paul said himself, the affliction, we, we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength. That was the point. That's the design that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt, and we talked about don't focus on what you're feeling. Focus on what you know. 
We felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves but on God who raises the dead. What if all of this was to make us rely not on ourselves but on God? And what if that process where we feel so weak and so vulnerable was actually the process that made us so capable? It says again in this wonderful chapter here in 2 Corinthians 1, the God of all comfort, that's how he describes him, the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our affliction. Why? So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Again, the temptation is to be so self-absorbed we can't see anything but our own problems. And then we're more miserable. We're immersed in a pity party. Jesus thought about his mother, about all of us, while literally hanging from a cross, nailed to a cross. Getting our eyes off of self and onto God and others has an amazing way of lifting us out of despair. Suffering sensitizes you. It makes you more sympathetic. You're more aware. You care more. And you can begin to redirect your pain. I think about the six stages of significant suffering First shock, that's when we're in a state of prayer, and often we give the wrong response because we're operating and responding in a state of shock. Then there's sorrow, time to grieve, which is necessary. Then often a time of struggle where we ask why. There's nothing wrong with that. We've talked about Jesus asked why. Then a surrendering, this is acceptance, leads to submission, which is the path to peace, which ultimately results in God bringing good out of bad. We grow, we're refined, we're purified, and hopefully we get to the last stage of service, which often referred to as redemptive pain, where your greatest pain and weakness can become your greatest ministry. Your test can become a testimony. Your mess can become a message. Your trial can become a triumph. But we can't get caught up, stuck in the why, as we've talked about previously. Why don't you do something about this, God? And the truth is, He is. We've seen that this morning. He's working something. Whether you see it or feel it, God's doing something about it right now. But maybe He's also waiting for you to do something. Maybe His response would be, why don't you do something about it too? Peter said, the end of all things is at hand. It's near. The end is near. Signs have worn this out, haven't they? (laughs) But it's true. It's still true. 2,000 years later, it'll be true 2,000 years from now if there is 2,000 years from now. Was Peter wrong? Was he making an absolute prediction? I think maybe the the Jewish age was coming to an end. Christian age, the last age, everything's coming into place. Peter knew about the Lord's instruction or teaching on Peter's death. He knew what the Lord said about the second coming that no one knows. I don't think Peter was making an absolute prediction. But all these things are being fulfilled. We're living in the last age. And in that sense, the end is near. It's imminent. It could happen at any moment. That's exactly how we should speak of the Lord's return today. Quit wasting precious time. That's what he says leading into this. Be holy as you hope. Live in constant awareness of the Lord's return. Be sober. Pray that you don't get inebriated by the world and get out of touch with reality. How do we respond? I think that's the thematic statement he makes in the very end of the book, in the last chapter. He says, By Sylvanus or Silas, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. True grace, in contrast to false grace, empowers us to stand firm in it. We've learned the facts. We've learned the gospel, the theology of sanctification, submission, suffering, grace, and glory. Now it's time to stand firm in it. 
Respond as an elect exile who is standing in the grace of God. That's how we respond. And as we offer an invitation, if you're here and you need to respond by obeying the gospel, putting off the old man, resurrected to walk in newness of life, dead to sin, sin no longer has dominion. Maybe you're here and you need to renew your faith so that you don't lose heart, so that you're renewed day by day as we've talked about. We want to invite you to tether your pain and suffering to His. Listen, tether your pain and suffering to the cross. Give it to the one who's described as the man of sorrows, who was despised and rejected and well acquainted with grief, smitten by God and afflicted. The Lord laid on Him the iniquity of us all. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He's bore all our griefs and has carried all of our sorrows. With His wounds we're healed. And if you're in pain this morning, He invites you to a glorious experience of healing and renewal in Him. If you need to respond to that invitation, the Lord invites you to come as we stand and sing together.